We do appreciate uh, everyone's presence today. Most years, I kind of dread this Sunday in a way. That's not the right way to say that. But it's the first Sunday of spring break for a lot of uh, school kids. And that means several of our families are not going to be here today. And so that's, that can be, uh, oh, uh, discouraging is not right, but yeah, I, just, I just don't like that people are gone. <laughs> I like to see people here. But we've got visitors today. And so that sort of balances that out. We do have some families that are gone and that, that are out of town. We have others that have come to be with us. And we're grateful for your presence. It may be that you've got plans this week to go and uh, vacate. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, we pray and hope that uh, you'll be safe, that you'll be able to enjoy yourself and come back and, and be with us when uh, the, time, the time comes. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 today. We're going to start there, though that's not going to be the majority of our focus today. And as you turn over there, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about a friend of mine that I had in high school. We're still friends. Uh, we see each other. We keep in touch a little bit. But he told me that uh, after we got out of high school, after a little while, he decided that he was going to pursue an engineering degree. And so he enrolled at the University of Alabama. He, he enrolled in, uh, as you know, uh, engineering curriculum is math heavy, a lot of math involved in that. And so he enrolled in, I think, a calculus class. And he said he, he lasted one day. And after that first day, he just had no clue, no idea what was being discussed and talked about. And so he got out of that, and he didn't give up on his engineering degree, and eventually he, he earned the degree, got a, an engineering degree. But he said he had to go all the way back, even before Math 101, you know, all the way back and kind of do remedial math, I guess, and, and catch up. The problem was, he didn't have a sufficient foundation to do the higher math. And so he had to go back and establish that foundation, start all the way back at the beginning, and develop and build that foundation. And eventually, like I said, he completed his degree. Now that's true not only in an engineering degree, but that would be true in, in a lot of areas in life. If, if you don't have a good foundation, well then it's difficult to build successfully. It's true in construction, obviously. If a building doesn't have a good foundation, he's going to, that, that owner is going to have problems as uh, the years go by. That's true in being a child of God and a Christian as well. If we don't have a good foundation, well, it's difficult to build successfully on it and become the kind of person, the kind of child that God would have us to be. So Matthew chapter 7 addresses that. In verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man, built his house on a rock. When the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. <clears throat> Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell and great was its fall. Got to have that good foundation. And so those who hear the words of Christ and construct their lives based on what He teaches, it has a good foundation, and when the problems of life come, 
Well, then they'll be able to stand. And those who don't do that build their house on the sand, on something that's not substantial, and something that's here today and gone tomorrow, like wealth or, or a prestige or power, this, this world's power. When the difficulties in life come, it'll fall. What we've been trying to do over the last several weeks is provide a good foundation. And we've been looking at passages that will help us do that. For example, the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10 where we started. And then we went to the 34th Psalm. We looked at Jeremiah chapter 9 and Micah chapter 6. We looked at Jesus' teaching in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 16 last week where if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. All of these passages are foundational. And if we don't have that good foundation built, well then our house is likely to collapse when difficult times come. Well, look at one other foundational passage this morning from Matthew chapter 22. So let's go there, Matthew chapter 22. If we were uh, to overlook this passage in our series of lessons, we'd be overlooking one of the more significant passages like this, a passage that provides a foundation. He, he, Jesus himself recognizes that. When he, uh, when he makes this statement. Well, Jesus, by Matthew chapter 22, has been teaching for about three years. He's become well known. Uh, his uh, teaching and uh, his life has been broadcast uh, around through Galilee and through Judea and, and, and Jerusalem. Luke chapter 4 and verse 14 says, News about him spread through all the surrounding district. And his popularity had a big following. His teaching became a threat to the religious establishment. So they sought to eliminate his influence, in this case, by asking a series of questions. And so they're coming to Jesus, they're asking him questions, and they're hoping in some way to neutralize his influence with the people, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. This, uh, this, uh, this event takes place in that last week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. I think it takes place on Tuesday of that week. On Sunday, he enters into the city and looks around. On Monday, he overturns the tables of the money changers. And this takes place the next day. Mark's account helps us to determine that chronology. The first question they ask Jesus is about paying taxes to the Roman government. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And Jesus answers that question. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God's the things that are God's. A second question then asked by the Sadducees, the first one asked by the Pharisees, the second one asked by the Sadducees had to do with the resurrection of the dead. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, well, you don't know the Scriptures, that's your problem. And so he answers that question. In the resurrection of the dead, they're like angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. And then the third question is asked in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. You can kind of see that huddle, can't you? Oh, well, our question didn't work. Their question didn't work. All right, guys, what's our strategy? What are we going to do next? One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? 
What's the greatest commandment in the law? Lawyers are like scribes. In fact, some people believe it's just simply another name for the scribes. People that have focused their attention, made their life's work the law. And so they're copying the law. They're teaching the law. They're learning the law. And so they're well-versed in the law of Moses. They had counted 613 laws in the law of Moses. And the, the rabbis considered this question, which, which is the greatest? Which is the most important? Which is foundational? Some had suggested uh, the 15th Psalm, where there are 11 principles stated that people ought to live by. Others suggested Isaiah 33, 15 and 16, where there are six principles stated. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, as we've seen, there are three. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. In Isaiah 56, there are two. Preserve justice and righteousness. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 4, there is one. Seek me that you may live. And so the rabbis are talking about this. They're writing about this. What's the great, what's the most important commandment in the law? How can we summarize our duty before God by one simple comprehensive statement? Well, how would you answer that question? If someone were to ask you, what's the most important, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Well, we might pick out a commandment or maybe in a generalized sort of way. Well, well, be holy. That's the most important commandment in the law. You might say, keep the Sabbath or we need to continue practicing circumcision or, or maybe one of the other laws. Some might say, what I would probably do if somebody asked me, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What I'd probably say is, well, you know, they're all great. <laughs> That's what I would say. They're all important. We can't neglect any of them. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say they're all, not in this passage anyway, he doesn't say they're all important. Now he does in other passages, but not this one. What does he say here? He answers it by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting as you read the different accounts, you read Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account, you compare that with, this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You go back and there's some slight differences in the way these different passages read, but none of those differences alter the sense at all. The sense is, Love God with everything you've got. <laughs> That's the sense. All your mind, all your heart, all your strength, everything you've got, you put that into the love of God. And then Jesus says, these are foundational, these two commandments. On these two hang the law and the prophets. The, all the law, that portion of the New, uh, Old Testament, all the prophets, they all depend on this. They all hang on this. This is the great and foremost commandment, he says. As you go through the rest of the passage, Jesus asked them a question down in uh, verse 41 and 42 and following. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They say, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. 
nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. There's some, there's some kind of funny statements in the Bible sometimes. That's, that's kind of has a, a note of humor in it to me. Now, Jesus answers their question, but if they can't ask him, answer his question. And it says, they didn't ask him any more questions after that. You know? <laughs> Maybe they had learned that tactic is not going to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. Well, let's talk about the great commandment, the greatest commandment. There are two parts to the answer. The one is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It was a well-known passage. It wasn't obscure. In fact, the Jews have a name for this passage. It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the word for hear, Shema. And so, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. They recited it daily. They put it in those pouches that they would bind to their hand. Remember, Deuteronomy says, you know, bind these to your hand, wear them as frontless before your eyes. These little pouches that they would bind to their hand, these leather pouches, they would write this passage and put it in those, in those pouches. They, they knew the passage very well. Again, what Jesus is saying, what the passage suggests is that we are to love God with everything we've got. Now just to make a couple of observations about that as we begin, the first one is, you know, Bible love is not simply or merely emotion. Now we've talked about that many times before, and it holds true. It may include emotion, People may be emotional when they think about God and think about what God has done for us. Be a strange Christian indeed who never became emotional about what God has done for us in giving His Son. But we're not to equate Bible love with sentiment or, or with emotion. And we need to be careful about judging the level of someone's love for God by the emotion that they express. Some are very expressive emotionally, and, and some people aren't, and we, we know that and, that, and that applies in this area as well. So, Bible love is more a decision based on the value or the worth of someone that we see, and, and a commitment to their well-being. And so, Jesus, God loves us. He sees in us objects that He desires to have fellowship with, people that are made in His image. And so, He commits Himself to our well-being, and He's willing to give what is necessary to bring us into fellowship with Him. And so that's what love is. It's, it's a commitment to the well-being of others, even when they're not lovable, and even when it's very costly for us. A second observation is there are different kinds of love. Sometimes we have love for an object. You might love your car. You might love, I just love these shoes, <laughs> or I love this sweater. So you, you have love for an object. You might love a painting or a picture or a song. And that, that's love, but it's a different kind of love that God, uh, Christ is talking about here. People love their pets. And of course, people love other people. But even when it comes to people love, there are different kinds of love. There's the kind of love that a husband has for his wife or a wife has for her husband. That's romantic love. That's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about that we ought to have for God. There's parental love, a love a parent has for a child and a child has for the parent. There's love between siblings and cousins and other family members. There's love between friends. 
There's love between brethren. All of those are a little bit different, aren't they? And so the romantic love that a husband has for a wife and a wife has for a husband is a little bit different, really quite different than the love that a parent has for a child. And so the love of God has something in common with these things, but, but then it's something different as well. It's unique. It's his own special kind of love, I think. We love God the way a child loves his loving father. But you know, even as children, we love our fathers in spite of their imperfections. <laughs> and so it's not exactly like our love for God. We love God. He has no imperfections. So it's like that, but then it's unique as well. But all these kinds of love have something in common, at least when it comes to people love. First of all, when we love someone, we want to please them. A boyfriend loves his girlfriend, and so he tries to do what pleases her. He focuses on what she wants. He make, tries to make her happy. He does what brings her joy. He avoids whatever it is that offends her. He puts his own happiness aside in order to please her. And so when we love someone, boyfriend or girlfriend, husband, wife, this, this is true just across the board when it comes to loving other people, we, we want to please them. We love God with all our heart. We want to please Him. Now, God can be pleased. That's remarkable, isn't it? that God can be pleased with me, that I can please Him. As imperfect as we are, as much as we fall short, as much as we do things that offend God, still at the same time, we can be well-pleasing to God. That's remarkable when you think about it. Let's look at a few passages that suggest that. In the book of Colossians, for example, chapter 1 and verse 10, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Live your life so as to please God in all respects in everything you do. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10, we are to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We don't come by it naturally. We have to learn it. We have to learn what pleases the Lord. And so, of course, we do that as God informs us through His Word. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. I, I'm encouraging you to walk so as to please God. Now, I know you're doing that, but I want you to excel more and more and more. On the other hand, Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 tells us that those in the flesh cannot please God. And so we can please Him if we walk according to His will. If we don't do that, if we live according to the flesh, and you know the flesh and spirit are contrary to each other, well then we can't please God. So we must deny ourselves, put God's interests ahead of our own, and seek to please Him. We, we can do it. If we learn how to do it, we, we can do it. Now, Jesus shows us the way in all of this. If you look over at the book of John, chapter 8 and verse 29, Jesus just makes this statement, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, that's another remarkable statement, isn't it? Always. That's one of those inclusive words, one of those absolute words like never, you know. <laughs> always. 
I always do things that are pleasing to Him. And so He's showing us the way, isn't it? Pattern our lives after Jesus, develop His attitudes, His responses, and so forth. We can live a life that pleases God. That's unlike some people. You ever know somebody just can't please them? <laughs> maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's a neighbor, just can't please him. Whatever you do, he's not going to like it. He's going to be mad about it. He's going to be upset about it. Maybe it's your boss at work, just can't please him. No matter how hard you work, he's not satisfied. Maybe, you know, maybe a parent, maybe a child, just can't please him. Unlike our relationship with some people, we can please God. He's shown us how. And if we love Him, see, we seek to please Him. That's just part of loving God. When we love someone, we do what He asks. A loving husband do, does what his wife asks. And he does it willingly and without complaint. Right, guys? You love your wife, she asks you to do something, I'm glad to do that for you, honey. <laughs> you do it willingly and without complaint. A loving parent will do what his child asks. That doesn't mean, I'm not trying to say that you just indulge the child in every way, but you know, what father among us, if his child asked for some bread, would give him a stone? Anybody? No. If our child needs something, we do our best to supply it. We do what they ask. So those who love God keep His commandments. We do what He asks. That's what Jesus says, John chapter 14 and verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what love does. <laughs> Keeps the commandments. It does what the one asks. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5, Whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And if you look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22, you have the two ideas combined. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And so that's, that's our love for God. We do what pleases Him and we keep His commandments. And then thirdly, when we love someone, we are willing to sacrifice for them. That's true when it comes to loving another person. When we come to loving another person, well, then we try to please them. We try to do what they ask us to do. And then we're willing to sacrifice for them. If we love them, we're willing to sacrifice for them. Now, that may not apply to everybody we know, <laughs> but the people that we love, we're willing to sacrifice. A spouse may sacrifice his own interest to please his... Uh, a husband might sacrifice his own interest to please his wife. And so at the end of the month, when the money's running out, got this much money, we, we need, I need this or I would like this. She says, I need this, I would like this. You take it. You, you do what you need to do with it. That's what a loving husband would do, a loving wife would do. And so they, they work it out that way. And so when we love each other, we're willing to make the sacrifices to supply the other what they need. If we love God, We'll sacrifice things for Him. Now, Paul's a good illustration of that. Philippians chapter 3, remember that passage where he gives us a list of the things that were at one time in his life an advantage to them, to him. He says, beginning in verse uh, 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. I count all things uh, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I'm willing to sacrifice everything for Christ because I love Christ. When we love God, these things are not a problem. When we love God, it's not a problem to do what pleases Him. When we love God, it's not a problem to obey Him. When we love Him, it's not a problem to make sacrifices for Him. It's only when we love something else as much as we love God, now there's a problem, now there's a conflict. Because you see, you can't serve two masters, can you? Hold to one and reject the other, or accept that one and refuse the other. When we love God with all our heart and soul and mind, those kinds of things are not, are not problems for us. We're, we'll do them, and we do them willingly and without complaint. God doesn't ask us to do something He's not willing to do Himself. He loved us with everything He has in the gift of His Son. Gave His only begotten Son. And so you see, He's not asking us when He says, Love me with all of your heart. He's not asking us to do something He's not willing to do toward us. So love of God sums up our duty to God. If we love Him with everything we have and everything we are, we'll not be devoted to another, we'll not take His name in vain, we'll express our adoration and gratitude in sincere worship, obedience to God's law, faithfulness to God, all motivated by love for Him. You know, in the Old Testament prophets, they dealt with the unfaithfulness of Israel, the idolatry of Israel, the immorality of Israel. What was the problem? They didn't love God enough. <laughs> they just didn't love God. If they had, well, then none of those things would have been an issue. You see, the law and the prophets hang on love for God. The second point is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. <coughs> You know, it's you know it's, the Bible doesn't say that self-love is a vice, does it? <laughs> now, we're to, not, to deny self, I understand that, but, but everyone loves his own flesh. He nourishes it and cherishes it. And so, self-loathing is a psychological problem that needs attention. But it's, so, it's, it's proper, it's appropriate to love ourselves in the right way. And Jesus calls on us to love others as we love ourselves. The Scripture has a lot to say about loving others, doesn't it? It begins with the love for God. We can't love our brother, we can't love God whom we have not seen, if we don't love our brother who we have seen. It starts with love of God. And so John talks about that extensively in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love does not know God, for God is love. And so it really begins with love for God. And then we love those who are born of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 and verse 21. Love for others first does no harm. We might start there. That's Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul's talking about loving others and how that plays itself out in our lives. He says in uh, Romans 13 verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Back up a little bit. Shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. 
there's any other commandment summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong for, uh, to, to the it does no harm. That's maybe the first place to, to start. But see, it's not enough to do no harm. We can isolate ourselves in our houses. We can not interact with anybody in any way. We can just be distant and, and aloof and do no harm. That's not loving your neighbor, is it? Love of neighbor requires action. And we must uh, act on this love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke chapter, Luke chapter 10, similar episode takes place. Jesus is asked by a man what he needs to do to have eternal life. And, and Jesus uh, quotes this, this same passage. He said, you know, what's written in the law, how does it read to you? And the, the man answered, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, this do and you'll live. And, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know, the Jews might have a limited sense about who their neighbor was. My fellow Jews are my neighbors, perhaps is the way they thought. And you remember on this occasion, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him, went away, leaving, his, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, put on his, his beast, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I'll return, I'll repay you. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands? He said, The one who showed him mercy, or one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, You go and do the same. Now remember, this story comes out of the command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is showing us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is your neighbor? Well, the story of the Good Samaritan follows. As we saw earlier, love, first of all, does no harm. And so the Good Samaritan doesn't do any more harm to, to, to the man that fell among thieves. Now you could say that about the Levi and the priest. They did no more harm. That's hardly love, is it? It has to act. It has to do something. And so the Samaritan comes to him. He has compassion on him. He uh, takes care of him, disregarding the social bias and prejudice of the day. So if we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we, and it begins with love of God, you see then we love all men because all are made in the image of God, right? And so... You can't love God who you haven't seen if you don't love your brother who you have seen. He's made in the image of God. <laughs> and so if we love God, we're going to be made in those who are in his, we're going to love those who are made in his image. The Samaritan understood the man that fell among thieves was made in the image of God. I'm going to help him. And so he disregarded anything that might have inhibited that that others allowed to get in the way. If we love others, we treat people with respect and dignity and honor. 
But the Good Samaritan did the Jewish man. We show him kindness and consideration and mercy and compassion, patience and forbearance, like the Good Samaritan did to the Jewish man. We see to the needs of others with generosity. You see, the way the Good Samaritan did with the Jewish man. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, is a passage that I like to refer to in situations like this. Verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, and send your power to do it. If you have the ability and the resources to do good, do it. Like the Good Samaritan did. Galatians 6 and verse 10 tells us that we are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Titus 3 verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Go and do likewise. That's, that's the message of the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? All men are your neighbor. Go and do as the Good Samaritan did. So each human being is made in God's image. When we treat people with respect, we're showing respect for God Himself. We treat others unjustly. We're showing disrespect to their Maker. So tell me, what's the greatest commandment? Go back to this. Well, what's the greatest commandment? It looks like two commandments to me. I don't know about you, that looks like two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What do the two have in common? The greatest commandment is love. The greatest commandment is love. And I know, I know, Bob, that, that sure sounds kind of sappy to me. <laughs> a little saccharine, a little overly sweet. The greatest commandment is love, but that's what Jesus says, isn't it? The greatest command is love. Love God with all your heart, everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the foundation, isn't it? That's, that's foundational. Once we've got that foundation built and in place, now we can build a sufficient structure on it. Appreciate everybody's attention today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together to get today and to worship you. We pray, Father, that our efforts today have been well-pleasing to you. We're thankful for the opportunity to look into your word. We're thankful that the words of Jesus have been preserved for us so we have access to them, that we can read them and we can understand them. Powerful words. We pray, Father, that they'll affect our lives in the way that you would want them to affect our lives. Father, help us to increase in our love. Help us to grow in love. Help us to develop a deeper and richer love for you, for your commandments, for your will. Help us more and more as, with each passing day to desire to please you more and more. Father, you've made it possible for us to do that. Help us to learn what pleases you and put that into practice. And Father, help us to love our fellow man, those created in your image. Help us to do good to them. Help us to provide their needs, to have compassion, to be merciful to them, patient with them, forbearing with them. Father, we understand that love doesn't always just give people what they want or indulge them. That Sometimes we love, we correct out of love. And so we pray, Father, that when we turn our attention to each other in that way, our love for our brother will always, always be the prevailing and motivating factor in that. 
Father, again, we simply pray to help us love more and more the way you love us and the way that you would have us love each other. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.